invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, 2 Kings, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2 as we're going to start a series, uh, an evening series on the book of uh, the life of Elisha, the life of Elisha. Let me just quickly cast the historical context. Um, Elisha ministered uh, about 850 years before the coming of Christ, so this is a long time ago. Um, this is uh, the kingdom of Israel had already been divided between the, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. Uh, things were not going well, particularly in the north. Um, uh, Ahab had been the extremely, extremely wicked king of Israel, had led Israel into all sorts of wickedness. Uh, he had just recently died, but his, his uh, evil wife Jezebel is still alive and exerting a strong influence. And uh, his uh, his son Joram was now king, uh, equally wicked, just not as zealous maybe about it. But, but um, that he, Joram was the, uh, the current king of Israel, continuing Ahab's legacy of covenant unfaithfulness and pagan idolatry and uh, just disobedience to God. So spiritually speaking, things are very dark in the land of Israel. Uh, Elisha's story begins about six years prior to our text when Elijah... Uh, found him plowing uh, with a, a field of oxen, and he called uh, Elisha to gospel ministry, and Elisha left everything to follow him and started basically a six-year internship with the great prophet Elijah. And that's where we come to our text tonight as we see the passing of the torch from Elijah to Elisha, and then um, the confirmation that Elisha is the um, uh, is the man of God and the prophet of God. So let's begin. We're going to read all of chapter 2 of 2 Kings. <clears throat> now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah, Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what shall I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. 
Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak of Elijah and saying, excuse me, then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the waters, saying, Where is the Lord the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your uh, servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Well, God in heaven, thank you for this inspired word. I pray you would speak to us clearly in it in our day, uh, that we might, Lord, hear the voice of our Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a a story here that uh, took place a long time ago, Uh, and it might seem like uh, it's sort of difficult to relate to the circumstances of that day, but while many things have changed, the basic facts of life remained the same for them as they are for us. The people of God there lived on this very same earth under the same sky. Uh, They lived under the same curse. They experienced the same uh, difficulties and trials that uh, that we experience as people made in the image of God and living uh, in this world. Uh, if you were a godly Jew living in uh, Elijah and Elisha's day, it would have been a depressing time uh, because things were not going well for the people of God in general. If um, you would sense that the nation was stumbling badly, that darkness seemed to be descending. Uh, your king, Joram, was It could have just as well been a pagan for the way that he promoted Baal worship, uh, the way that that he promoted paganism in the nation. Uh, The priests pretended everything was fine, peace, peace, they would say. They just kind of went through the rituals, went through the motions, uh, were not willing to rebuke the king, were not willing to stand for righteousness. So the priests were very compromised. And consequently, the nation as a whole was just stumbling into ever-deepening darkness. And you would have sensed in that day that the judgment of God might fall at any time. The, the nation of Assyria to the north was increasing in strength, uh, was threatening to attack. And you might have just wondered, how long uh, will God put up with this wickedness before he brings judgment? Well, 
I think we can identify with those sentiments. It can be depressing to live as an American Christian. Uh, it can be depressing because uh, though we are not Israel, America has never been right the people of God. It was a, a nation founded on Christian principles and, and, and functioned with Judeo-Christian worldview. And uh, we're seeing that all disappear. We live in a post-Christian society. Uh, we live in an ever-increasingly pagan society. Uh, pagan uh, ideas and ideals are, are being uh, promoted and taught um, with glad abandon, right, from our universities, from our ruling uh, class, um, and the church is being compromised. Large portions of the church just pretend everything's fine, and they adopt the new agendas and the new ideologies uh, of the culture, the pagan culture around us. And, and, and so we see, uh, we see a nation in disarray. Uh, we see a nation that's crumbling. Uh, we see foreign nations gaining in power and threatening, and uh, judgment seems imminent. What, um, how long will God put up with the eager wickedness that we see? Well, into the, uh, the, the turmoil and the despair that God's people felt in, in, Isaiah, in uh, Elisha's day, uh, God sends his prophets, um, men of God equipped with the spirit of God to speak the truth of God, uh, to manifest the presence of God, and, and to uh, just to be a light for the encouragement and building up of the church in Elisha's day. Uh, tonight we're just going to see the succession of, the, of uh, Elijah's um, trans, uh, transfer to heaven and, and, and the way that the power of the Spirit fell upon Elisha, and then three confirming signs that Elisha was truly God's man. So the, the story of uh, Elijah's departure, of course, is one of the memorable stories of the Bible. And um, I'm sure you maybe remember the Sunday school picture you, you've seen of the whirlwind and the chariots of, and horses of fire and Elijah uh, uh, ascending into heaven. Uh, Elijah, of course, one of the only two men in history who've been, who ascended to heaven, Enoch being the other, uh, two men who did not experience death. And so this is, a, this is a towering story in the Old Testament, and it's told in dramatic fashion as we're invited to walk with Elijah and Elisha on this last day, and there's, uh, everyone knows it's Elisha's, Elijah's last day. Um, you find two repeating patterns in the text. Uh, on the one hand, uh, every town they go to, the, from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, the school of prophets that are there come out and they say to Elisha, uh, do you know that this is the day the Lord's going to take your master away from you? And um, as though they had all been informed and Elisha was in the dark, it would, have been, it would have been irritating, and you get a sense of Elisha's irritation, yes, I know, shut up about it, is basically his response. And, and the next town, the same thing happens, this repeating pattern. Uh, why is that there? Well, um, it's the Spirit of God letting the, uh, the people know that um, when Elijah is uh, uh, transferred to heaven... This is, this is purely an act of God. There's no misunderstanding about what, what took place. You don't have to start telling stories. Uh, someone right, could be saying, well, I, I think he just gave up. He was sick of the whole thing, abandoned his post, just like, remember back when, he, after the whole Mount Carmel thing and the, the prophets of Baal, and he just disappeared into the wilderness. I, th I think he's just burned out. Uh, others would say, well, I think he got kidnapped um, by his political enemies. No, no need for any rumors. Um, God took Elijah home in a miraculous, astonishing fashion. And uh, everyone would know about it, and there would have been 50 witnesses to watch it, watch it happen. Um, but the second thing, the, the pattern we see, is that each place, 
Elijah asked Elijah, Elijah asked Elisha to stay behind. He says, I'm going to go on to the next town. Would you please stay here? And every time Elisha says, no, as the Lord lives and as you live, I'm not leaving you. And so he refuses uh, to, to stay behind. Elisha here is not being disobedient. He's, he's just manifesting his devotion to this great man of God. Uh, when when uh, Elisha was called by Elijah, we see read that in 1 Kings 19, he was plowing with a team of 12 oxen. Elisha apparently came from a very wealthy farming uh, family. Uh, 12 oxen would have been um, that's, a, that's a great big John Deere four-wheel drive right monster out in the fields you see today. That was, uh, that was as good as it gets. And what did Elisha do when he received the call? Do you remember? He sacrificed all the oxen, all 12 of them, offered them up as a, as a burnt offering uh, in showing his complete devotion to this new call. He was cutting all ties. He could have gone back home if he wanted to after just uh, destroying all this, this, this property. He, he was cutting all ties with his past and committing himself 100% to the call to, to walk with Elijah and, uh, and to serve him. And he's not stopping now. He's completely devoted and loyal. But it's clear that uh, he's not just staying close out of devotion, but because he has a favor to ask. And and when they finally reach the Jordan River, um, Elijah rolls up his rope and his cloak, strikes the water, water parts. I mean, we hear those stories, but if, if you can just imagine being there, I don't know if you've ever seen things that seem contrary to nature. Um, it's startling. I remember the first, my first earthquake when the ground is moving. You're just not used to seeing things like that. It's not, that's not supposed to happen. Well, Water is not supposed to just separate so that the ground is dry and people can walk through. This would have been a, a, a keen sense of the presence and the power of God. And Elijah, but it's not surprising. This is Elijah. This is a man that calls down fire from heaven. And so they, the water parts and they walk through. And then Elijah says, what, what do you want me to do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, Elisha is, is fully cognizant of the fact that Elijah was a great man because he was a great man of God, because the spirit of God was at work in a mighty way through Elijah. And Elisha realizes that he's going to be left behind, and there's no way that he's going to be able to carry on this ministry without the very same spirit that empowered Elijah. Elisha knows that this, this doesn't happen. It's not by might, right? It's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so Elisha asks for a double portion. Now, that doesn't mean that he asks for twice as much. Uh, the double portion in the Old Testament is the portion that would be given to the firstborn. So if you were uh, uh, an aging man, you had four sons, you would divide up uh, your property, and the eldest would get two portions, Right, he gets two portions. Um, and Elisha's saying, let me be the firstborn in that sense. Let me receive the special endowment of the spirit that God has given to you. You have a unique empowering of the spirit of God. Let me have that same unique empowering. The servants, we, 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 the prophets, we read about the school of the prophets. They all had the spirit of God, but not like Elijah did. 
Not in that measure, not in that fullness. And Elisha wants to have what Elijah has. The same spirit in the same, in the same measure, in the same empowering. Well, Elijah says, you've asked for a hard thing. Because um, it's not my spirit to give. This, the, the spirit of God is, is God, sovereign. The wind blows where it wills, Jesus says in John chapter 3. And, and so he says, it's not mine to give, but if you see me when I ascend, then it shall be so for you. And if not, then not. Right? It's in the hands of God completely. And then suddenly, without warning, it happens. They're walking, they're talking, and behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Again, if you could just imagine the, the awe you would have felt at that moment, the suddenly spiritual reality is revealed to you. The, the veil right, drops away, and you see the, the, the reality of the spiritual forces of the, the army of the hosts of heaven. And the whirlwind and the chariots and the fire, they, they, they take Elijah up into heaven, and he's gone. That would just be a stunning moment, uh, a moment of, of, of awe, devotion, trembling, uh, a moment of glory. Elijah did not taste death. The curse in that sense has been broken right in front of Elisha's eyes. Elijah has ascended physically, bodily into the presence of God. And the next time we see him, he's talking with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the next time we find Elijah in the Word of God. Well, this highly unusual departure just identifies Elijah as the, the, maybe the great prophet of the Old Testament. When, when they talk about the Messiah, remember, they said, one like Elijah will come. He is the, 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 the prophet par excellence, the man of God. Moses was a great prophet, but, he, but Moses died and was, was buried by God, but buried. Elijah did not experience that. But, that. but this presents the problem. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament... The man who accomplished great things for the glory of God and for the encouragement of the, the, the people of God has left. He's gone. Now what? That's the issue. Now what? What will happen to God's people now that Elijah is gone? And that's where Elisha steps onto the stage as God's ordained, divinely ordained prophet. And that's where we, we have these three confirming signs which is God's way of saying, um, Elijah has left, but I haven't. And so we have the three signs. First, the parting of the Jordan. Verse 13, Elisha took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back, and he stood on the bank of Jordan. Remember, he's doing this in front of 50 other prophets. So this is either going to be um, a moment of tremendous confirmation or a moment of great humiliation. Imagine standing there, striking the water, and nothing happens. Well, uh, he takes the cloak and strikes the water and saying, where is the God, the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. What's the significance of all that? Well, that's, it's, it's obviously showing 
that uh, the power of God that belonged to Elijah now rests on Elisha, but it's told in a way that would remind those who are watching of another transfer of power. Years ago, when Moses left and the, and, and the, the, the baton was handed on to Joshua, it, that took place, in, really, Joshua um, took on that robe of leadership right here at the same place, at the Jordan River. And in, in a similar sign, right, the parting of the Jordan. You can read about that in Joshua 3.10. Joshua said to the people, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from you, uh, before you, the Canaanites. This is how you're going to know. The water's going to part. It's the same sign and it's the same question. You see, the, the, the parting of the waters of the Jordan answers this critical question, Is God still with us now that the great prophet is gone? Whether it be Moses or Elijah. And that's why Elisha says, Where now is the the Lord, the God of Elijah? God, are you still here? Are you still present? Are you still at work? Think of the devastation if if the answer was no. And the darkness is just going to descend and, and, uh, and it's Ichabod, right? The glory has departed. But the answer comes with a resounding back, yes, God is here. Elijah may have left, but Elijah's God is still present. Elijah's God remains, and that's what matters. Elijah's God, the God of Moses and Joshua, the God who has been leading the people all along, the God who's been faithful to his covenant every step of the way, the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is still here. God is with his people still. Reminds me of Psalm 90. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and thy defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. Right? O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. This is the confidence that we have, friends, as we stand in a darkening world. That God has not abandoned us. God has not left us. God is, is still here. God is still present. The sign of the parting of the Jordan was not just for Elisha's benefit, but for the church, for all those who were standing there watching. And when they saw the waters part, they said, the spirit of Elijah rest on Elisha. God is still here. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Well, there are two other confirming signs that we find in the text. The curing of the water of Jericho and the mauling of the mocking boys. I'm going to take the, the, the last one second, the, the mauling of the mocking boys. In verses 23 and 24, we read that as he was going on his way, some small boys came out of the city, jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42, mauled 42 of the boys. Now, this is a story that causes consternation uh, among readers. What are, we, what are we to make of this? One, one commentator uh, calls this a bubenmachen, the German word for a scary children's story with a moral. Right? A scary children's story with a moral. And the moral, of course, would be, be nice to your pastor or the bears are going to get you. <laughs> that's the moral. Now, of course, that's not the point of the story. There's a lot more going on here than that. It's a, it's a little bit of part of the story, maybe, but, but not the majority. 
Some things to help us put this in, in its right context. These are not five-year-old boys. So the, the text is a little misleading, small boys. Um, they're not men. They're not young men. But they're, they're, they're going to be 10, 11, maybe 12, right, right at the age. Um, these, are, these are boys old enough to know better. And there's a large group of them. 42 of them get mauled. Uh, the rest, there has to be most likely more than that who are sprinting when the bears come out. Um, they're from the town of Bethel. That, that tells, that's a sign. Bethel is not a good place to be from. Bethel was a place where uh, Jeroboam had set up the two um, calves for idol worship. And so idol worship is rampant. It, it's a wicked city. A city that's been opposing God for some, town, for some time. And they're not just mocking Elisha. They're mocking Elisha as a prophet of God. He wears the prophet's robe. His bald head might have been uh, the prophet's style. And their chant, go on up, go on up, uh, seems to have been a reference to Elijah's ascension into heaven. It's the same word you'll find in in the text. In in other words, they, they seem to be jeering, why don't you go on up too? Why don't you just get out of here, be gone, disappear? So that's the sense of the group that Elisha faces here. And notice, Elisha doesn't send the bears. He pronounces a curse on them in God's name without any reference to how that curse will be carried out. So, So who sends the bears? God sends the bears. This isn't just a cantankerous prophet who is wielding magical powers to get rid of pests who are bothering him. This is, this is God's action. God sends the bears. You see, because God is a holy God, and he's, he's not to be mocked. He protects his servants, and he protects his name. And, you, and you'll find that kind of judgment of God happening at various times, particularly at the beginning of a new work of God. So when God leads Israel out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, almost immediately you have three guys, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who oppose Moses, number 16, and God responds with a very strong act of judgment. The ground opens up and they disappear. You have the same thing in Acts 5. Here's a new movement of God. In the New Testament church. And Ananias and Sapphira have the audacity to lie about the money that they're giving. And the Lord strikes them dead. Both of them. And great fear falls on the community. So this seems to be of that same genre. God, in, um, uh, the judgment of God, the righteousness and holiness of God striking out at the beginning of a new work of God. Um, the mauling is most, was most likely not fatal. This seems to have been a divine spanking. A divine discipline, certainly to, to um, make very clear to the boys, to their parents there in Bethel, that you mock God at your own peril. He is a holy God. You don't mess with Him. You don't trifle with Him. He's holy. But as we follow Elisha's ministry along, we're going to see that this is what the Puritans would call the strange work of God. God's acts of judgment are a strange work. His, his normal work with his people is, are, are acts of mercy and grace. And that's what we see in the final con- confirming sign here. The curing of the water of Jericho, verses 19 through 22. The men from Jericho come and say, the, the, you know, you can see things are going well here. 
If you remember your history, Jericho had been destroyed, of course, when Joshua came into the land, and for years it had lied desolate. It had just recently been rebuilt, but the water was still bad. The water was still under the curse of God. And so things were not growing. The, uh, the, there was not life coming from the water. Uh, there was miscarriages caused by the bad water. It was, it was, it was a, the curse of God still remained. And now, in a beautiful way, the Lord removes the curse. And so the men came and they, they, they talked to Elisha about it. He asked for a bowl, put salt in it, and he dumps it into the spring. And, and we read, uh, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. What a beautiful sign of the grace of God. The, ju- the curse on Jericho was, was there rightly, justly, and yet God, through Elisha, graciously removes it and removes it completely and forever. The water has been healed to this day. God, through his servant, has shown uh, the, the grace, his grace and love in overthrowing the curse and conquering the curse, defeating the curse, and in its place now there's life-giving water. It's a beautiful picture of the, of the gospel itself. Well, what's the, what's the message of this text for us today? Well, in the first place, it would it'd be the same message it was for Israel then. That, um, yes, we live in a threatening world. Uh, the, the, the forces of evil are real. If you want to you just remind yourself of that, read the book of Revelation. Uh, read about how the abyss opens and the demons uh, come crawling out and and God allows that in his, in, in his sovereign power. And, and, and so the forces of evil and darkness are real. And I think we're, we're absolutely seeing those forces increasingly in our day. But just as God wants to remind his people then, he wants to remind us now. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. Um, God is still with us. The God of Elijah, the God of Moses, the God of, of, uh, of the fathers is with the children. He's with us. And he's still in control of this world and ordaining and maintaining all things according to the purpose of his will. And his will is to save us. His will is to uh, renew this whole creation, to make everything new. And so we are actually in truth more than conquerors because God is with us. And so we don't need to be afraid. And I have to confess, I got to fight with that. I see see lots of reasons for God to judge us and and I can give way to fear, thinking about what's that mean for my kids? What's that mean for my grandkids? Uh, what's that going to mean for the church when, when things really fall apart, when, when evil seems to be taking over? Um, Jesus says many will fall away in that last day. Is that going to happen here at Harvest? Are we going to be okay? Well, this text tells us God has it. Right? The God of Elijah is with us. He's going to go before us. We're going to be okay as we, as we trust in him. He's able to keep his sheep. But I think there's a, an, another note here for us as New Testament saints, particularly. If you notice, these stories, uh, particularly the last two, both involve, uh, um, they're about a curse. And, and one curse story uh, ends in judgment. The boys are mauled. The other curse story ends in blessing as, as, uh, as a fountain now is flowing with life-giving water. And, and, and clearly this points us to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came very specifically to deal with the curse. That's why he came. 
The world was under the curse. Mankind was under the curse. And, and Jesus came to bear that curse in his own body, to receive the mauling that we deserved from divine justice. And through that very sacrifice, a fountain of life-giving water now flows. If you think about Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I can give you water. Water so that you'll never thirst again. Water that will well up in you unto eternal life. And, and you'll find that theme throughout the scripture. In fact, the Bible ends with that, right? Come, those who are thirsty, come and drink, drink. Jesus has opened a fountain of life for all those who are thirsty, all those who are dying under the curse. Jesus opens up a fountain of life. And friends, he invites you and us. It's not just a one-time thing to drink from that fountain. It is a day-by-day-by-day -day -day reality. To drink from the life-giving water of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, abide in me, and if, I, and, if, and if my word abides in you, ask what you wish, it'll be done for you. This is the Christian life as we live. Uh, not only are we not to be afraid, we're to drink deeply of Jesus Christ and experience the life-giving water that he provides, and then live our days that God has ordained for us with gladness, with peace, with confidence, with joy. Yes, sometimes through tears, Sometimes through heartbreak, sometimes in confusion. It's okay, it's okay. That's, that's the journey, that's the pilgrimage. But this God is our God. This isn't just a nice story from the Old Testament. This is our God. And he's with us. And he will not abandon us. And he will work everything in your life. Everything, even the most devastatingly hard things. God is at work to bring us one day into our eternal home. Our God will go before us. We're going to be okay as we rest in him. Amen. Oh, Father, I thank you that you're with us. Russ and Barb are sitting in the back row tonight, and cancer is in her brain. And yet you give peace and comfort. And I thank you for that. And Jesus, um, Russ and Chris are just devastated and grieving still the loss of Braden. And, and yet, Lord, you're with them. And Lord, some of us here are lonely. Some of us are deeply sad. Some of us are profoundly confused. Some of us are scared as we think about what's happening to this country. Lord, this is the life that we, that we live, the world in which we live. And we need to know that you are with us and that in Jesus Christ there is life-giving water for us. And life-giving water, Lord, for our unconverted friends and family members. So that we don't walk through this life just hoping for the best, but, but we can live with peace even through the tears. Even when the trials and the tragedies come, we can know that God is for us. And Lord, I, I just pray for the, the truth of that to settle into our lives so that it makes a difference how we talk, how we feel, drives out the worry, the anxiety. It comforts us in the pain, in the grief, in the loneliness. 
for we're going to be we're going to be okay. Because the God of Elijah is with us and and our Lord Jesus Christ has removed the curse and pours out his riches and blessings on us. And Jesus, thank you. And may we thank you every day until we see you face to face. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand and respond to the word tonight. Our God will go before us. the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, 
equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.